0: Welcome to the show, I'm Jordan Harbinger. As always, I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On the Jordan Harbinger show, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the world's most brilliant and interesting people and turn their wisdom into practical advice that you can use to impact your own life and those around you. Now today I have been waiting, it's it's fair to say I've been waiting 10 years for this interview. Frank W. Abagnale is a security and anti-fraud consultant for over 50 years now. He, at one point, was one of the world's most famous con men, starting at age 16. He was caught when he was 21. He traveled the world forging, printing, what have you, $2.5 million more than that in checks. He impersonated a Pan Am co-pilot, which allowed him to travel for free, He also impersonated a Harvard lawyer, a resident doctor at a local hospital, a Columbia-educated professor, and the FBI finally caught up with him in France, and they asked if he'd basically come and work for them, because he had figured out so many holes in so many systems. He actually today designs many of the secure checks banks and companies use today. And today, Jason, we've got some amazing stories. I mean, we're going to hear all about him impersonating pilots, how that worked, how the check fraud game worked. how he impersonated a doctor how he ended up impersonating a lawyer and working at the district attorney's office yeah no less <laughs> so it is this guy he is full of stories he's been fighting crime and fraud for five decades now almost so this is just one of the most amazing episodes that i've had recently i really it's really a joy to have frank w Abignale here today If you want to know how we manage to book all these great people and manage relationships, well, we use systems. We use tiny habits. Check out our six-minute networking course, which is free over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. And by the way, most of the guests here on the show actually subscribe to the course and the newsletter. So come join us. You'll be in great company. And here is Frank W. Abagnale. Frank, thank you very much for taking the time. This is uh, exciting and... It's going to be fun. Catch Me If You Can is one of my favorite movies. Of course, I read the book multiple times. I'm just a big fan oh, of thanks. that. Yeah, and, you know, I I think for a lot of folks, myself included, there are some kids that grow up dreaming of being rock stars. There are some kids that grow up of dreaming being an athlete, and there are other kids that didn't have a chance at all that and then got into a lot of trouble as a teenager and then went, uh-oh, Am I going to be in prison later? And then I saw the movie and I went, okay, good. I can live vicariously through Frank Abagnale's story and then not go to the prison in France with no lights and no toilet. That's true, and I've had a lot of young people tell me that. In a way, you were a millionaire before you were 21, and you you flew planes as a pilot, but you couldn't fly. The first question that comes to mind with the whole pilot scam is, did you not look too young? I mean, most pilots are like 40-something.
1: No, I actually, that was the one advantage I had. I had a little gray hair. I always looked a little older. I went to a Catholic school and every week we had to go to mass. He had to dress in a suit. And my friends always used to say, you look more like a teacher than a student. So I had that, I had that going for me. But one thing that I noticed is that when I put that pilot's uniform on, no one questioned that I looked too young to be a pilot. But if I had met you in a restaurant or a bar and I was just in casual clothes and you said, what do you do? And I said, no, I fly for Pan Am. You just said, I don't know. You look a little young to be a a pilot. So it was amazing that the uniform was so powerful. People just saw the uniform. That's all they saw.
0: That's funny. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's a psychological principle there that I think a lot of people use even now. I mean, extrapolating this to the work you're currently doing with your new book there are people that say, oh, I'm calling from the IRS or I'm calling from the police station and they sound really official and there's background noise or they'll have, a, they'll have a sound effect that to you or me or somebody else is clearly a sound effect. But to somebody who's 65 and doesn't deal with the police or law enforcement, they go, oh, this person must be at the police station because I I heard a fake siren in the background or something along those lines. And Yeah, it's, it's st-
1: absolutely – it's absolutely um, – You know, people convincing. First of all, the caller ID is manipulated to say it's the police department, so they believe it is when they pick up the phone. Then they haul that background noise in the background. It's a boiler room, so they're able to switch calls to different people as if they were transferring a call to a detective or somebody in another department. So, yes, it sounds very real. And to people who are not aware of the scam or what's going on, it's very easy to fall for it.
0: In a way, that's the uniform. That's the 2019 Pan Am pilot uniform, it's the 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 look as if, the numbers spoofed, the background noise or, or anything like that. And I, I know that there's a lot of concepts that we'll use, that you can teach us to illustrate these concepts throughout the, the show here. But I thought it was interesting, your first victim, if you will, was actually your own father. I mean, th- this belies a little bit of, of your story here, because I think a lot of hardcore con men where you go, oh, this is despicable, they're not really they go into this looking for really easy marks and old people and innocent people but to con your own dad either you're the worst teenager in the world or you're doing this for shits and giggles for laughs for or for chicks
1: i never looked at it as about conning my dad it was all about girls and i was this young kid who uh you know wanted to have the means to meet these girls so i just came up with this idea but it was so complicit with the people who helped me you know i would Literally go to a gas station and tell the guy, I'll take these four tires. He'd bring them off the rack. I'd give him the credit card. He'd get an approval. Then he'd come back and say, I'd say to him, you know, I don't really want these tires, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll I'll sell them to you for $100. So you'll basically get the money from the credit card company, but you'll uh, make a profit and you keep the tires. And every single person, no matter what gas station I went to or service repair, absolutely, I'll do that. So it was more about me just getting money. I wasn't thinking about my father getting stuck with the bill or having to pay the bill. It was so if I was really convincing anybody or conning anybody, I felt I was conning the gas station uh, to give me that money.
0: Yeah, that I can, I can see that. At the time you're a kid, you're not really thinking that far ahead. This is the opposite, though, in many ways of how you ran your scams later on. It seems like your vision... Y- your vision got bigger picture and longer term as you got a little bit more developed. I would say as you got older, but this is all happening when you're still a teenager. So, I don't know if I don't know if that's the right word, <laughs> older. Yeah,
1: well all, you know, everything happened between 16 and 21 and people say, you know, you were brilliant. I wasn't brilliant, I was just a kid, but being an adolescent, I had no fear of being caught. I had no fear of consequences. You know, I really every single thing that I did I didn't premeditate or it would have never happened. I would have rationalized it and said that won't work. So, you know, I went into banks cashing checks, but it was very difficult to convince them to cash a check for me. Then I was walking down the street and I saw this airline crew and I thought to myself, boy, if I had this uniform and then I walked in the bank as this pilot, they're more likely to cash the check for me. And it was like night and day. I mean, I, the uniform was so powerful. That's all they saw. The check looked stupid. But they saw the uniform, and I was this pilot, and they did So I quickly learned very fast that uh, that was a way to be able to do that. That was just a mechanism. But if I had really thought it out, it probably wouldn't happen. I didn't sit in front of a bank and think to myself, I'm going to go in and cash this check. If they say this, I'll do this. If they do that, I'll do this. I just went in and did it. I think had I been a little older, 25, 26, started doing these things, I would have rationalized you can't get away with it. Uh, it'll never work. I think because I was so young is really what made it do. And it started out more as survival. How am I going to survive? Then it became people are chasing me and how am I going to stay ahead of the people chasing me? And then towards the end of it, it started to become more of a game until, you know, I eventually stopped knowing that they would eventually catch up with me.
0: Yeah, I think that learning this as a kid you you ha- you mentioned going to bars and business dealings with your dad. That plus the lack of adult supervision. Would you say that was kind of the magic combination for this? Because a lot of kids don't even think about doing this. You must have come up with the idea by seeing adults wheeling and dealing. Seeing adults and to be
1: to be absolutely honest, you know, my parents were uh, going through that divorce, and uh, I was very upset about that. I was this kid who thought if I got in trouble, that might get my parents back together again. Uh, I was going through a lot of those things that adolescents unfortunately go through when their parents are going through a divorce. And like you said, yes, then it becomes a lack of supervision because they're tied up in their own problems. They're not paying attention uh, to their children, and the children are trying to get their attention. So I, I think a lot, though I never want to use my parents' divorce as a crutch. I take total responsibility for what I did. I paid my debt for it. Uh, but absolutely, that was the things that were on my
0: mind when I was doing it. You mentioned in the book that you put on the uniform and I'm paraphrasing here, but you put on the uniform to feel better about yourself in some ways or to feel important. How much of all of this was done in the beginning? Like you said, later, they were chasing you. But in the beginning, how much was done to prove to yourself, to prove to others, I'm smart, I'm, you know, I value, I I can do this. I'm just wondering, because I feel like that's a very teenage boy thing to do.
1: Yeah, I think that because I was so young, I felt there was anything I could do. Uh, I wasn't afraid of trying something. Again, I think the uniform started out more as to me as a mechanism to be able to go in and cash these checks. But then when I saw the respect the uniform got, that obviously was a very good feeling. And uh, then I was able to meet girls and everything because I was this young guy who was a pilot in a uniform, Uh, you know, all those things just added to it. But they didn't start out with me thinking that. It started out with me just saying, this is a good mechanism to go in the bank and cash a check.
0: Yeah, the old slippery slope, right, <laughs> I suppose. Right. Yeah, th- the momentum took on a life of its own. There's a scene in the
1: movie that Steven Spielberg had, which is so true, is that, and actually, I did walk up to a TWA counter. I was getting, it was in a uniform. I was getting ready to purchase a ticket, and she said to me, are you buying or riding? I said, I beg your pardon, are you riding the plane or are you buying the ticket? You want to be in the jump seat? I said the jump seat? Yeah, I gave you a pass, You're just go on the jump seat. Well,
0: I learned everything as I
1: went. I had no idea you could do that. So then I started riding around on planes
0: in the jump seat. uh right. That's where she, you walk up to the counter. Of course, I rewatched the movie recently. You right. walk up to the counter, she goes, "Are you my deadhead to Miami?" And right. Leonardo DiCaprio goes, "Uh, what?" <laughs> right? Cuz <'Cause> he'd <laughs> exactly. never heard that before. Right. the whole act like you belong there and walk right in advice it it sounds to some people okay that's cliche or it's antiquated it's old i'm never gonna fall for that i think people who think that way are that's the type of thinking that makes you a good victim or a good mark because they think i'm immune to this this doesn't work anymore because everyone's heard of this trick do you agree with that Uh, you are absolutely
1: 100 percent correct and Uh, People are, people also are basically very naive. Uh, I find that a lot of young people are not very resourceful. If I took them to New York and took away their iPhone, they couldn't find their way back to Virginia. Uh, (laughs) It's just amazing to me today. And that's why I tell people all the time that I'm amazed that what I did 50 years ago is thousands of times easier to do today due to technology. And the fact that you can do it from thousands of miles away, the fact that nobody ever needs to actually see you, uh, you don't actually see your victim, so all emotion goes away, all conscience goes away, all guilt goes away.
0: So it's actually much easier to do today than when I did it. That's an interesting point, and I want to get to some of this in a little bit, that it's easier now, because I think that surprises a lot of people. But the the whole act like you belong there, this is hardwired biology, right? It's not a matter of wearing a suit, having a name tag. I think fighting hardwired biology, the tribalism that exists in humans, where we see the guy in the pilot's uniform, we're wired to think that something we see is actually true or actually there. And fighting that hardwired biology takes a lot of vigilance. I think it takes a lot of training, some of which you provide. But people don't naturally have this. I don't look at a pilot who's standing in an airport lobby and go, that could be a fake pilot. The chances are slim, but he could be a fake pilot. I would never think that because I'm not trained to think that there's a fake pilot walking through the airport trying to scam flights or get through security. It doesn't make any sense. But even today, I do that.
1: I look at the buttons on the uniform to make sure the buttons are the actual real buttons. I look at the wings a person has. Uh, but, you know, I always used to say traveling with my wife that I could point to a corner and go, you see that guy over there? He's a policeman. Or you see these guys over there, getting, they're getting ready to sell drugs. Uh, and she would sit there and go, how do you know that? Uh, or, you know, I'd see some guy standing on the corner and say, that, that's a cop. And she'd go, no, he's just a guy in a suit. No, he's got a pair of handcuffs on his tie, the shoes he's wearing. Uh, these are just things, a part of being extremely observant, that I learned at a very young age, and that helped me through all of that and helps me
0: in my career later. That definitely makes sense. I mean, being observant is one of the, the, you have this sort of three pillars that we can go over later in the show of a good con man, and observant, I believe, was one of those pillars as well. Absolutely. It, it, the observance that you have, the, was this something that, when you look and you say, that's a cop, do you immediately go because he has the handcuffs or do you say, actually, he's a cop? Let me now think of why I know that. Is it kind of an instant recognition that you then later are able to pinpoint why? Or are you looking at things and you find slowly that he's a cop? Does that question make sense?
1: It's more, of yes. And it's more of an instant recognition. I see it and I know it. I don't question myself of uh, how do you know it? Why did you come to that conclusion?
0: I just say to myself, I know it. Did you ever read Blink by Malcolm Gladwell? He talks about this with the fake Greek art statue. I've heard about it. I've never read the book. Yeah. So there's a for those of, of you listening that haven't also read this book, there's a, a Greek statue and it goes to all these experts and they all say it's real. And this museum curator or this other expert, he goes, It's fake, and they say, How do you know? And years go by and everyone's studying this and they say, You're crazy, it's real. We authenticated it, we've caught, you know, we took drilled holes in it and and all this stuff. <laughs> And it turned out later on, he goes, I got it. The fingernails are wrong. The fingernails are, they're wrong. They're the wrong whatever. I can't remember the exact reason. And then they basically said, well, if you're so, all right, let's look at the fingernails. And they went, you're right. There's something weird about these fingernails. And I believe they drilled a hole clean through the thing and then spent, you know, thousands of dollars carbon dating it. And they went, yeah, this is fake. Holy crap. And he knew it right away. I mean, within five minutes, he went, this is fake. I just can't figure out why it took him years to actually figure out the reason that he knew, but he knew his brain, his subconscious mind knew immediately.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, if I, if I can take a minute to share a story with, yeah. you know, I, I have uh, been teaching at the FBI Academy for four decades. I've taught two generations of FBI agents, and I basically teach them to think out of the box and how not to look at everything black and white. But several years ago, an ATM company came to me in my office and showed me a picture of a new ATM machine and asked me if they could put that machine in my office and if I could keep a couple of weeks, keep it and test it and find some ways that I would defeat it. And I looked at the picture and I said to the guy, well, I can tell you right now I, I can defeat it. He said, what? How, how, how can you say that? We just spent millions of dollars on re- research and development for this. I said, well, do you have one of these machines somewhere? Well, yeah, in the, in the Kentucky airport in Louisville. I said, well, I recommend that we meet there, and let me show you how you can de- defeat this machine. Well, can it be tomorrow? I said, well, no, not tomorrow, but in a couple of weeks. So I showed up there, and the guy says to me when I get off the plane, where's your tools? I said, no, I don't have any tools. Did you bring me a card and a number so I can access your machine? Yes. So we walked over, and there were three ATM machines there. And I basically, theirs was a test beta machine that had it set up and working. I stuck the card in, asked for $20, did the PIN number, and it dropped into a well. And when the door opened inward, I put my hand in there. I took out the 20 There was a green light, so it knew my hand was in there. When the light connected back, it knew I'd remove my hand. There was a two-second delay, and it closed. So I put it back in. I asked for another $20. But this time out of my pocket, I took some super glue and put it around the door, and then the door shut. Then I said, let's go sit over here. People came up. They put their card in, $100, $50. The money dropped. The door wouldn't open. So people pressed cancel. They got their card back, and they went to another ATM machine. After a few people, we walked up. I put the card back in, $20. I popped the door, and all the cash came out. I said, get rid of this door. And that's (laughs) why ATMs, now the money just comes out straight. There is no door.
0: Yeah, they used to have that big metal (laughs) rotating. (laughs) her whatever you call it like a a cylinder in there right and i remember thinking man you better not get your hand caught in there and they and the designer went we're not going to get any hands caught in there because we just freeze the door when there's an object in the way oops yeah
1: you know i I i've i've spent a lot of my career working with technology companies and i think one of the best uh, explanation was a gentleman named ori eisen who is the ceo of a company called true sona And I've been working with them for five years to rid the world of passwords. But he was once asked, "Why do you work with Frank Abagnale?" And I know he's advised you for twenty years on different technologies you developed. He said, "Because I'm not a criminal. I cannot think like Frank. I can develop the best technology in the world, but only Frank knows how to beat it." So he said, "My relationship with Frank is that we play chess together." I tell him I did this, and then he comes in and says, "Well, you know, I could defeat that by doing this." Mm-hmm. Then I go back and I fix that, and he comes back and says, "Well, that's good, but you could still do this," until he tells me that it's pretty sound. Uh, I don't bring it to market, but I can't think like he thinks. Only he can think the way
0: he thinks. See, that's the real hacker mindset, right? People think hacker, they think computer hacker. This is the, computer hackers are are great at breaking into systems and securing systems, but this is this goes beyond. Coding and and things like exact. that. This is exactly this is the social engineering. This is the the real sort of hacking that. And I've talked about this before on the show. I, I when I was a kid, got in quite a load of trouble doing similar things with phone systems. And I remember the phone company had to change a, a among other things, had to change one of their systems because you could get calling cards by having a number dial back to the phone, and it would say, "Great, we're just going to charge." Here's your secret PIN number. We charge all the calls back to this phone number now. And I thought, well, I could probably call this number from a payphone, because payphones have phone numbers. And so I did that. And then of course, you know, you're making all these calls to Japan. And then the phone company gets the bill and they said, Who, who's not paying the bill for six four five-one four two six? Oh wait, that's one of our payphones at a drugstore down the road. We gotta pay this bill. And you know, all little things like that. When you're thinking about designing systems that are convenient and useful, very rarely are you also thinking, what would somebody who has all day to think about how to ruin this for everyone and steal from it be be thinking? Those those are not necessarily the same people. Those aren't the same designers. You're
1: you're so correct with that. And we look at all of the, the majority of technology that comes out today. They're so quick about getting it to market for a return on investment. The marketing people want to get it out. So you have a device in your house you talk to, and you ask it what time of day it is, what's on TV, uh, order me this from the Internet. Uh, Obviously, it's voice activated. So with a little twitch, you can then listen to anything anybody says in their house. They develop these technologies without ever going to the final step and saying, now, how would someone misuse this and let's block that from ever occurring. They never do that. So consequently, we had all this technology out there. And it's very simple to manipulate, whether it's a Samsung TV or your remote control or whether it's a refrigerator in your house. It tells you how much milk it's in it. All those are just access points for hackers.
0: Yeah, we're talking about the Internet of Things earlier on the show. And it's like, hey, people are going to be able to have your thermostat Send 8,000 requests an hour or a minute to a website, and they're going to do that times 100 million thermostats and shut down Facebook or Google or or some big company's website because they're not designed with security in mind. They're designed, hey, look, you can access your thermostat from your phone from anywhere in the world with no No, password.
1: (laughs) And it gets more dangerous than that we have the ability now to shut someone's pacemaker off, but we have to be within 35 feet of the person. So you have to get up walking past them on the sidewalk. And if they have any device on them, you can shut it down, speed it up. We can take a car over because most cars have about 240 computer components in them. So we can get within 35 feet of that vehicle. We can lock the person in the car. We can shut the motor off. We can turn the airbag on. We can town the power windows and keep them shut. But the question is, if we can do that now, does that mean in five years I could do that from 350 miles, 3,500 miles, or 5,000 miles away? So I think you're going to see a lot of these things become a necessity to make sure that they
0: cannot be manipulated, which they're not doing now. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. When I'm in, I'm in my Tesla and someone goes, Hey, it's so cool. You can unlock it with your phone. And I go, that just means anyone can unlock it with their phone. Unlock it with yeah. it. That's
1: exactly right.
2: You're listening to the Jordan Harbinger show with our guest, Frank Abignale. We'll
0: be right back. This episode is sponsored in part by ZipRecruiter. It is tough to hire. I've done it a lot in my business and Frankly, you're sifting through resumes. It's a huge pain. What ZipRecruiter does is it sends your job offer to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and then they don't stop there. They've got matching technology, so they scan the resumes and they find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. So then of course as the applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and then spotlights or highlights the top candidates so you're not going to miss it. The problem with hiring sometimes is you can't find anyone, other times it's that you find so many people that are interested or that apply. ZipRecruiter will streamline and use some of the fancy some of that fancy AI to streamline the process. ZipRecruiter is so effective, four out of five employers who post on the site get a quality candidate within the first day. So it's been extremely useful. I have know tons of people that have used this and gotten a bunch of candidates from it, so it's no joke. And there's a reason that they, they're all over the place, because it works. Jason?
2: Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash Jordan. That's ziprecruiter.com slash J-O-R-D-A-N. ziprecruiter.com slash Jordan. ZipRecruiter,
0: the smartest way to hire. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. If something's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, like getting a full night of sleep or derailing some of that anxiety that's been keeping you up all the time, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. And what I like about these guys is they offer licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, Sleeping, trauma, anger, grief, self-esteem. I know that's a long list, but humans be complicated, right? Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. In other words, it's not something that's gonna be in an email that gets forwarded all over the place. Everything's confidential. Everything is most, mostly it's convenient, right? You don't have to drive across town. You don't have to find a parking space. You're not trying to get one slot with one person who then goes on vacation for three months a year. You can get help at your own time and at your own pace. It's video, phone, chat, text, you know, 21st century therapy. So if you and if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time and there's no charge for that. And a lot of you have experienced better help and then gone on to get in-person therapy and a lot of you have experienced better help and just raved about how convenient it is and have been sticking with it for a while. And I know Jason, you're on that tip. And tell them what code we got for them. Tell them what deal we got. You can get 10%
2: off your first month with a discount code jordan. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash Jordan. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash Jordan. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. And to learn more and get links to all the great discounts you just heard from our amazing sponsors, visit jordanharbinger.com deals. Don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways from Frank Abagnale. That link is in the show notes at jordanharbinger.com podcast. If you'd like some tips on how to subscribe to the show, just go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe. Subscribing to the show is absolutely free. It just means that you get all of the latest episodes downloaded automatically to your podcast player so you don't miss a single thing. Now back to our show with Frank Abignale.
0: A lot of your... Uh swindles if you will back in the day they involved researching the other person a lot for example there was a bank that you had swindled back wait you know decades ago now you knew the manager would be out you knew the name of the manager's wife as well it, this sounds like a dumb question i'm sure but how do you get information like that and do research before the internet because for me yeah i look at all these databases but how do you find the bank manager's wife's name in the country club they belong to Okay, the,
1: that's why that's why it's so much easier today than when I did it 50 years ago. 50 years ago, it took me making a lot of phone calls and doing a lot of research to get that information. Today, there is so much information. We live in a way too much information world. So if you're on LinkedIn and you tell me you graduated from the University of Nevada, I go to the yearbook for University of Nevada online the year you graduate. I see who you befriended. Maybe I see who you married. So now I have your wife's maiden name. You know, as I remind people all the time, uh, some people call me the father of social engineering, but you have to understand when I did it, I didn't even know I was social engineering <laughs> people. But the truth is that there is no technology that can defeat social engineering, and there never will be. Not even AI can defeat social engineering. You can only defeat it by educating people. You have to educate people that they're being Socially so there's a big scam going on right now where they call into the phone company and they say to the phone company, they go through all the security questions, mother's name, social security number, your pet's name, everything they want to ask, everything they answer is correct. And then they say, how can I help you? Well, the, the SIM card on my phone is broken. I need a new SIM card. So they mail them a new SIM card. They put it in their phone and now they have everything that's in your phone on, on their phone. But they know all the answers to the security questions because they're everywhere. I mean, there's nothing they can ask me on a
0: security question that I can't go find out in a matter of seconds. That's very true. And and that's how a lot of people, I'm sure you heard about this, when Bitcoin really spiked, a lot of people were going, wait, I got hacked. And they go, oh, your security settings are bad. And they'd say, no, someone called AT&T, said they were me, said my mother's maiden name, the school, whatever, the street I grew up in, (laughs) got a new SIM card, went on the website where I log in, said forgot password. They texted me a code to the phone that this person just reprogrammed. My my phone number is their own. They got the code, not me. I was at AT AT&T store freaking out because I didn't have service. They logged into my Bitcoin or my bank account, and they drained it. And people go, oh, my gosh. So now the weak link is some guy in a call center at AT&T or Verizon who makes 15 bucks an hour. That's th- that's not a weak link that I want with all of my money attached to it.
1: Absolutely. And and th- this is why, you know, one of the reasons I've been involved in this no passwords, you know, passwords are for tree houses. They were invented in 1964 when I was 16 years old before I had done any of these things. And here at 71. We're still using passwords. So I want to be able to call the call center, and the call center at my bank identifies me from my phone, and I press an app on my phone belonging to the bank, and they know who I am. I don't have to enter a password. I don't have to answer any security questions. And most of all, that call center doesn't have any information about me. They're not sitting at a screen looking at my social security number, my date of birth, my mother's maiden name, all that information that they then can turn around And maybe sell to someone else. So there's certainly a way of making these things a lot safer. But like you said, the majority of people are so naive about these things, these things don't even enter their mind that there are people who can do these things, and they can do them from thousands of miles away.
0: That's it's so true. I I went to Guitar Center yesterday, I had to buy a microphone kit. And I show up and the guy goes, hey, do you want 5% cash back? I said, sure, because probably I'm just going to give him my phone number and he's already got my name, right? And he goes, right. yeah, you just got to fill out this little form. And the second question after name on the form was Social Security. And I said, hey, I'm going to leave this blank. And he goes, no, no, we use that in our computer. That's that's your customer number. And I went, you mean to tell me that my customer number or my record number, maybe not my customer number, my record number at this store is my social security number. And he goes, yeah, but it's every store does this. And I said, no, I don't think so. And he goes, yeah, I used to work at this other, he named a couple other stores. He goes, well, all the, all of those databases, They all we just look you up by social. And I was just thinking, wow, so there are tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people across America who are able to access millions of people's info at all of these department stores, all of these electronic stores, because you wanted $3 off of the thing you just bought
1: absolutely i remember a few years ago going to a westin w-e-s-t-i-n hotel very nice hotel the girl asks for my driver's license so i take it out to show who i am she starts typing everything in my license in her computer i said what are you doing oh, we just enter all this different license number and all this information So first of all I live in Oklahoma. My license number is my, is my social security number. I don't want you having my social security number date of birth. Your hotel's all over the world. Someone in Africa, someone in Nigeria, somewhere has access to this information you're typing in. I don't want you putting that in there. Uh, but, you know, they're not even, they're even naive about all that. Take the people who are taking the information are naive about how someone could use that, whether it be internally or externally.
0: Yeah, to be fair, look, it's not just Nigeria. I'm far more worried about the kid in Ohio who watched Catch Me If You Can last week with his dad than I am about no, right, somebody exactly. in Nigeria, right? I, I mean, exactly. But yeah.
1: the point is that there are criminals now it used to be, you know, 50 years ago, you dealt with domestic criminals and it, it wasn't that difficult to track them down, prosecute them. Uh, today, you're dealing with somebody sitting in their pajamas in Moscow with a cup of coffee and a laptop and they're thousands of miles away but this is also why we talked about earlier you know even in the old days a con man had a little bit of conscience about him so he said to himself you know i'm gonna take this man old man for his money but i'm gonna take him for all his all all of his money because he's kind of a nice man i don't want to take his home and away from him uh there was some some emotion involved in it uh today you the person never sees you you never see them so they have no sympathy for the victim and that's what's so scary today
0: Yeah, I I was going to ask about this. This is why people are are trolls on the internet, right? Because if I disagree with you about something, I might say, Frank, you know, I like you, but I think you're really wrong about XYZ policy. But if I'm on the internet, what I say is, I hope you die in a fire and you're (laughs) burned to death slowly. You know, I don't don't even, and then, you know, if I ever met you in real life and you said, weren't you the guy who said, I hope you die in a fire and burn to death slowly? I would be embarrassed, right? Because I'm a normal human,
2: right? Right.
0: But on Reddit, Absol- no such yeah. thing. <laughs> no, no, or on the internet, right? Uh, the the process for learning about the airline stuff, like what equipment people use, this is called elicitation. For people who haven't really heard of it, so it's, it's almost a way of it's almost an elicitation scam. The way you get information, and in in the book, in the movie, you have this reporter gambit where you say, "I'm with the school paper. I want to interview." Was it a, a manager at TWA or United, and you were asking him questions? It was,
1: they changed it a little bit in the movie. What it actually was is I, I went out to Hangar 14, which was a Pan Am hangar out at JFK, and I said I'd like to interview one of the pilots just to, to give for a story I was doing about being an international airline pilot. And they had a, a, like a stewardess and pilot lounge, and they said, you can go in, and one of the, I'm sure they'll be happy to talk to you. So I started speaking to this captain, and here I was, this kid, I dressed to look like the kid, and it was a kid, and basically, just started asking me these questions. And I'd ask them, what does it mean to, you know, about this? Or what's the rate of climb on these planes? Or how much fuel do these planes carry? Uh, how how many hours do you work? And they were more than happy to answer all these questions. I'm sure never in their father's imagination did they think I was gathering this information so I could pose as a pilot.
0: Yeah, of course, because you looked young. And I know you read a lot, like you said, you hung out at the airport. You, and one thing that, that you mentioned in the book that I thought was crucial was you talked less than you listened. Right. That's Abs- underrated. <laughs> I didn't
1: talk. I only answered direct questions, and I tried to answer them. And if uh, and if I felt that I was, you know, it's 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 an instinct. For example, if I was standing in the lobby of a hotel in Paris with this Pan Am pilot's uniform. And another Pan Am pilot walked up and said, hey, what's going on this morning? Doing all right. Uh, where are you based? Yeah, I'd say, well, uh, San Francisco. Oh, really? You must know uh, Captain Elliot Jones. Oh, yeah, I've met Elliot many times, flown with him a few times. What about Bill Carter? You had to know at what point was he now testing me? The first one was just a com- convenient question. You know he's it's a real person. But by the second or third, you get that instinct that he's testing me to see that probably doesn't exist or the guy's not based there. And that was just the thing I really had to learn how to read people and get that because you were caught in these exist situation where you were living a chameleon existence and you had to be able to just be able to cipher those things. And when are people testing
0: me? When are people suspicious about me? Uh, etc. Did you ever have to say something like, I got to confess, I'm a little bit new and I don't think I've met bill jones i do know the other guy but i don't know if i met bill jones should i know him am i gonna get am i embarrassing myself right now and that oh no i'm just playing with it i think he's based out of texas
1: yeah no those are the kind of things i do but i had to sense when was that point was that in the first guy he gave me the second guy he gave me the third guy and uh that was just some instinct that you had to say okay now this guy's really just testing me so i need to you know I need to watch what I say. I
0: think some of that has to be tone of voice, the way that they're looking at you, right? Are they leaning? Are they really focused on you or are they doing their thing and making small talk? Because those things add together and you go, hmm, this person is putting a lot of attention on this last name that he's asked me instead of checking in. Why? Right. right?
1: And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's so hard to explain because... It's their facial expressions. It's the way they, and the way that you're able to read it. And then, you you know, you realize as a young kid, nobody taught me to do this. I just know how to do this. And I really don't think about it like, wow, I was good at picking out what he said. It's just that that instinct, you're looking at his facial expressions, his mannerisms, and you're starting to realize, you know, this guy's testing me. You can't explain how do you know that. It's like being observant. How do you know those things? Sometimes it's just an instinct
0: you had. I know that you had to keep a journal, and you probably studied more for being a fake pilot than you would have, uh, at least in the (laughs) beginning, (laughs) as a real pilot. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting though that a lot of this is easier nowadays with technology. I mean, I've looked on uh, websites like Quora that have a lot of Q and A, and. There'll be something like, "How do I get a job as a security expert?" And someone at a big company will say, "Well, the first thing you got to know is this." And I know it's a weird programming language, but you got to remember, all of our security software is written in cobalt. and it's like, right. and it's oh, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so th- that, all of this is on there.
1: Yeah, there's just way too much information out there that today is so easy to do any of these any of these things, and it's a it's a little bit scary. You know, when I go to the airport now. I observe all the time that when you go through security and the crew comes through, uh, all they're doing is flashing this ID card that I could make in five minutes ten times better looking than the ones the airlines actually give them. And nobody's really paying attention. They're just holding it up and they walk through. And then you ask yourself, why all this security if this person just happens to have a uniform on and they've got this card that they could have made up with any software program. They could have put a hologram on it. They could do whatever they wanted to make it look real, and they can go uh, go through the airport. So the technology in your hands today to do these things is just uh, truly amazing and incredible, and people are very naive about it.
0: Absolutely. I made fake IDs. I hope the statute of limitations is up on this. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I made fake IDs when I was a teenager, and the way that I did it was I made the absolute worst possible photoshop printed off on a photo printer and laminated id that you could possibly find but since nobody had photoshop nobody had a photo printer and nobody had a laminator in the in the mid 90s it was people would go wow okay well this must be real now if you get if you got this fake id from anyone you would say so you obviously just made this and you probably exactly. did it on your phone <laughs> exactly
1: right? and you remember this story that I got on board one of the flights, and for the first time, a pilot said, the FAA Tower wants me to see your license. I said, oh, um, you know, I put that in my flight bag, and I checked it. And he told them that, and they said, okay. So then I thought to myself, boy, I uh, I have an ID card, but I can't let that happen again. So I was looking through a flying magazine, and I saw an ad where you could— have a actually a plaque made of your FAA license. It would be an aluminum plaque with black letters and velvet around it and a wood frame. All you had to do was supply them the information. So I sent it in, said I was this pilot. This is the equipment I flew on, my height, my weight. And they came back with this plaque. And then this plaque, I went into a printing shop in New York, and I said to the guy, look, this is my pilot's license on a plaque, but I'd like to be able to, you know, like a diploma, I'd like to keep it in my wallet uh, can you do something with it? Yeah, I can put it on an iTech camera. I'll shoot it down and I'll print it out on a, a white cardstock. With the had the FAA logo on it. was black and white to begin with. Uh, and when it was done, I mean, I had what looked exactly like the real FAA license. That's why they're so much more sophisticated uh, today. But that's how simple it was to do. And, and again, this technology didn't exist
0: today. The technology that exists is so much far easier to get those things done. This is amazing because, of course, you were supposed to have the FAA license, probably send a copy of that to the plaque place to have the plaque made, but instead you had the plaque made and then you used that to get the license. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Because they didn't ask me to send it. All they did is say, fill out this form and then they fill, put it
0: on the plaque. Right. Because who's, who's going be to get a fake <laughs> right. FAA license? Why? Right? Well, to right. be a pretend pilot. You're
2: listening to The Jordan Harbinger Show with our guest, Frank Abagnale. We'll be right back after this.
0: This episode is sponsored in part by Figs. Now, Figs are, the scr- I, I hate overusing this metaphor, like the 21st century of scrubs, right? So scrubs are the what nurses, doctors, dentists, what they wear, and if you've ever worn these or seen these, when you get up close and personal with them, they're not high quality. It's kinda like wearing a crummy bed sheet most of the time. Figs are amazing. What these amazing people do every day is more than a job. You gotta dress the part. This is a uniform. It should be functional. It shouldn't get coffee on it and then while you're trying to clean it off, you rub a hole in the dang thing because it's made out of Kleenex fabric. Figs, when I got these, when I got the sample, I was like, these are super high quality. These are really, really nice. The fabric is thick enough but still breathable. They have zipper pockets. They've got stylish and functional scrubs. And I didn't know that these exist. I didn't even know there was a need for this kind of thing, but, but I don't understand how previously these didn't exist, and that's always the mark of a good product. When you wear this medical apparel, for lack of a better term, you're gonna look your best, feel your best, and they've got antimicrobial stuff. I don't even probably need to explain to you what microbes get on scrubs, okay? So antimicrobial, seems like table stakes, protects from germs and bacteria, really soft, wicks moisture, four-way stretch. They've got yoga waistbands instead of a crappy like shoelace drawstring, like a lot of these other scrubs do. And they donate hundreds of, of thousands of these sets in over 35 countries because they give scrubs to other healthcare providers around the world when you buy a pair. So, yes, there are gift cards available. So next time your doctor, nurse, dentist, dermatologist or pediatrician saves the day, tell them thank you. You can send them some figs or grab some for yourself or someone you love. Jason, I know we got a good deal for them. So whether you're one of the awesome humans
2: that works in healthcare or someone that wants to say thanks for these deserving folks, FIGS is going to make that easy by providing you with 15% off your first purchase by using code JHS. Get ready to love your scrubs. Head to wearfigs.com. That's W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S dot com and enter our code JHS at
0: checkout for 15% off your first purchase. This episode is also sponsored by Mighty Networks.
2: Do you think a community is hard to build? Well, you're right if you use Facebook groups or you're managing a mess of different services. But with a Mighty Network, you're able to build a community that's so valuable you can charge for it and so well-designed that it essentially runs itself. Go to MightyNetworks.com and get started. It's so easy and simple to set up, you'll be up and running in minutes. In Mighty Networks, users are seeing some amazing results. One author was able to debut on the New York Times bestseller list from the books she pre-sold on her Mighty Network – And a speaker was able to build a new seven-figure business by launching a membership site via his mighty network. What's really cool is that you own your own network. And since it's not advertiser-driven, your community doesn't get any ads and they're not being mined for their data. In this day and age, who doesn't want that kind of privacy? I've been building communities online for over two decades, and this is the solution I always wish I had. Modern turnkey software with apps for both Android and iOS and a beautiful web presence. If you're a community builder, you need to check out Mighty Networks. Right now, they're offering the best deal they have available anywhere at MightyNetworks.com slash Jordan. You get three months free when you sign up for a year, but you have to go to MightyNetworks.com slash Jordan. This is their very best deal,
0: three months free. Go right now to MightyNetworks.com slash Jordan. This episode is also sponsored in part by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You can get in a crash, people can get hurt or killed, but let's look at some surprising and disgusting stats here. Almost 29 people in the US die every single day in alcohol impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year, and drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet, too, and I think, honestly, it should. You can get arrested. Of course, you can incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly lose your job. Nobody wants to work with somebody who's irresponsible enough to get to drink and drive and cause that kind of mess. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? First of all, plan a safe ride home before you start drinking. Designate a sober driver, call a taxi, use one of those apps we're all familiar with. If someone you know has been drinking, take their keys, get them a sober ride home. Yeah, they might be mad in the moment, they'll thank you later, and so will everybody else. Seriously, we all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. And their slogan here is drive sober or get pulled over. And uh, one of you emailed me and said, Wow, that's clever. Did you think of that? And I did not think of that. My my slogan would be a little darker, be like drive sober or drive your family into soul crushing debt and anxiety after you've been imprisoned for manslaughter. And I, I think the other one rhymes and probably is a little bit more of an earworm. So we went with that. But seriously, don't drink a drive. You don't need to. It's terrible. Don't let anybody else do it either.
2: Thank you for listening and supporting the show. Your support of our advertisers keeps us on the air. To learn more and get links to all the great discounts you just heard so you can check out those amazing sponsors, visit jordanharbinger.com slash deals. And don't forget the worksheet for today's episode. That link is in the show notes at jordanharbinger.com slash podcast. And if you're listening on the Overcast player, please click that little star next to the episode. It really helps us out. And now for the conclusion
0: of our show with Frank Abignail. You must have had some close calls with the cops, with the FBI. I know in the movie there's one that's, I assume, an apocryphal scene where Tom Hanks walks into the hotel room and you pretend that you're the Secret Service and you're there already. I assume that didn't happen, but there has to be some close calls where you took advantage of information disparity.
1: No, and actually what a lot of people don't know is that actually happened. So what Steven Spielberg said is that he had scripted – he had actually scripted that scene – but on the set during the entire making of the film was Joe Shea, who was the FBI agent, portrayed uh, 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 Carl Henry, uh, Carl Henry, a Call Henry character portrayed by Tom Hanks. And the two younger agents were there. And so he, during the entire filming, they were on the set. So he got a lot of their information from them. And basically, he asked him to read from his notes. So he read that I walked in the room, I had my gun drawn, I heard someone was in the restroom, I told them to come out. He then identified himself as a Secret Service agent. So he, Steven Spielberg, said, I loved his notes better than I loved my script. So <laughs> I basically just followed his notes. And that actually did take place just as it did.
0: What? I but- thought for sure that that's fake. I mean, you're in this hotel room with fake checks and a, all paraphernalia in a you know room service buffet or whatever. And then ha- FBI basically kicks in the door almost and you're in there he's got hands in the air and hold on you're late i already got yes. it he, he's running out the window you know he, listen
1: yes if you play the game you have to play the game to the very end so you know that you know it's a big difference like i tell people all the time when they said well you stood in front of that night deposit box and you said it was out of order uh, weren't you afraid that someone's going to come and question you you know if you never did anything wrong in your life and then you go do something you're very scared and you're very worried you're going to get caught. If you've done a whole bunch of things and people are chasing you and it's just another thing, it's just a question of, uh, I might get caught this time, I might not. So you're going to play the game out to the end, and, and that's all I was doing. I didn't think I'd get away with it, but I just played it to the end and I did get away with it.
0: Unbelievable. He must have been so angry. After it that. was mad at me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my yeah. God, did did you ever get sick of being on the run? Like you start thinking, oh, I should go home. I mean, it sounds exhausting, and it, it seems like I would almost want to get caught at some point just so I had an excuse to stop. You know, it, it's it was it, it, absolutely. I mean, it, i even
1: if I knew where all of this brought me to where I am today, I would never want to relive that again. It was an extremely lonely life. Uh, you know, I, I never got to go to a senior prom, a high school football game, share a relationship with someone my age. I didn't see my parents or my family uh, for years. I spent some horrible times in some horrible prisons. Uh, it certainly is not a life I'd recommend for anybody and was certainly not worth it to even where it brought me uh, today. And it, it, it was a life where, you know, people were constantly chasing you. You really didn't have any friends. You know, I met people and uh they believed me to be somebody else. That was one of the things that surprised me that the people that I encountered, flight attendants and other pilots, for example, doctors, I never cheated any of those people. On the contrary, I gave them money. I took them out to dinner. I took them on trips. But when it was found out who I really was and the police questioned them, they were very, very angry. And as a young kid, I couldn't understand, well, why is this girl mad at me? I never did anything to this girl. On the contrary, I bought her all these things. I took her all these places. But what it really came down to is people do not like to be deceived. And they felt that, you know, I took you in as a friend. I trusted you. And you were lying to me all the time. No, you didn't physically take anything from me. You didn't physically harm me. But you truly deceived me. And I realized that people... That had much more impact. It's like people say that when someone robbed their house and they say, "Well, no, they didn't take anything, but they went through all my drawers and everything like that," and it bothers them considerably. Uh, I came to understand that that was the real thing that that really bothered people—that they were deceived.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably it. And look, I mean, there uh, was—was her name Rosalie, or at least that was it in the book. You were going to marry her. I mean, she didn't care about. She, I'm sure she thought vacations or n- nice bags or whatever were cool, but, I mean, she was probably looking forward more to starting a family, and then she found out you, you weren't even you. Right. And when I told her that, you know, uh, I,
1: I, I, I was telling her that because she was 26, 27 years old. I was 18 years old, and I knew she was getting serious about me. And so I was just telling her, you know, I'm not a pilot. Well, I met you on the plane when I was just riding in the jump seat. And I'm only telling you this because I care a lot about you. I never told anybody this before, but, you know, uh, I ran away from home, and this is the circumstance. So we were out riding bicycles, and she said, well, let's go back to my house. And I said, you know, why don't you go, and I'll come in a few minutes. And so I went by, and I went one block over from her house and went down the side street, and I looked over the fence, and all the police cars were there. Well, you know, at that point, I said to myself, see, you can't trust anybody. They only like you for who they believe you are. And that kind of reconfirmed, I'm never going to tell anybody again who I am and what I did. But then years later, I realized that this woman who I who I actually met years later and her brother years later, she she basically thought, here's this kid. He's in trouble. The police are looking for him. He, he could get hurt. So she did the right thing. But for me, I looked at it as an adolescent who said, see, I honest with one person and tell them the truth, and they turn around and call the police. But that was the mind of a kid versus the mind of an adult like she was.
0: Yeah, of course. W- w- was that maybe one of the worst or first real emotional consequences you had from your scam? I mean, it seems like your, your yeah. feelings were hurt for maybe absolutely. the first time. Yeah,
1: And absolutely. And went through that whole thing that people really only like you for who they think you are, you know, and uh, if you're not the pilot, you're not the doctor, you're not somebody important, then people really don't care about you.
0: Did you think you could or would stop at some point on your own? Or did you feel like you had a wolf by the ears where you just couldn't stop because people were chasing you?
1: No, I and I eventually did stop because you get tired of running. And I was getting older. And the other thing that came into play is, you know, your conscience. When I was 16, I really had no conscience. I didn't think about any consequences or what's going to happen to me. But as, you know, as I got a little older, for example, I used to walk in the bank and just cash a check. But as I got a little older, I'd go in the bank and I'd have to convince the teller to cash the check for me. Then when I walked out, I'd say to myself, you know, I hope this teller doesn't lose her job because really she wasn't supposed to do this. And I convinced her to do it. And I'd hate to think that they're going to fire her because she did it. So my conscience was starting to really, uh, really bother me and i knew that eventually i always knew i'd get caught you'd have to be a fool to think you're not going to get caught but i i didn't want i didn't have it in me to go turn myself in so i moved to this little town in southern france and i knew eventually that i left a trail they'd eventually follow the trail and they'd eventually uh, catch
0: me and they did i know that you also ended up impersonating a doctor and i i thought to your point that's one of those things that you can just only do when you're younger and you feel invincible or if you're a complete and total you know sociopath (laughs) which you are are not because this was obviously dangerous and you you have to be in a position where you're not really thinking about that and i know you used humor and flirting to deflect disaster and real duties and things like that when you were kind of put on an emergency shift but there's a there's a point in the book where they say there's a blue baby in room 608 and you're like well i got a green baby in 609 it's like no that means the baby's dying and then right exactly and you know again the doctor not
1: premeditated i moved in this apartment complex in atlanta Uh, it asked on the application occupation i didn't want to write down airline pilot because they were looking (laughs) for me posing as a pilot right so i wrote down doctor and that's all i was going to write down then the girl started asking me questions about well what kind of doctor are you i said i'm a medical doctor i'm not practicing medicine right now well what type of medical doctor, are you? And I said pediatrician because it was a singles complex. Only single people live there. I thought that was pretty safe. But then I ended up meeting a doctor who was a pediatrician there. He introduced me to other people. And then I started reading a little just to keep up conversation with him. And the next thing you know, they had an opening in the hospital because a doctor had had a death in a family. And it was just for two weeks that the doctor had left. And they were looking for someone in an administrative capacity uh, to to cover that shift. So I always kind of looked at how far can this go? So, you know, I'd say to them, do I have to treat anybody? Do I have to physically take care of any No, no, uh, because you're not licensed to practice medicine in the state. It's just a temporary certificate in an administrative capacity. So, you know, I really didn't go in like in the movie and look at a patient or something like that. I basically was just in the hospital, but I did get situations where they asked me questions and I had to go look it up or read it to answer the question. Uh, And again, I I would have never stayed there, even if I thought I was getting away with it, because I was always smart enough to know that, you know, that whole thing, you can fool people some of the time, but you can't fool people all the time. And I knew that eventually people would get wise to me and they'd catch on.
0: Yeah, of course. So so again, you're kind of getting sucked into it. You you thought, I'm never going to have to pay the piper on this whole doctor thing. And then, you know, dot, 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 you're working at a hospital emergency room.
1: Exactly. But again, if I had premeditated, if I had said, "Ah, now I'm going to go to Georgia and I'm going to pose as a doctor and I'm going to get a hospital, a job in the hospital as a doctor, it would have never happened. But that's what I mean. Everything, if I was anything, I was an opportunist. I see these things came forward and I saw them as an opportunity. I could do that. I could get away with that. And again, because I was so young, I just thought I could do it. I was invincible and I could get away with it. Had I been older, I would have sat there and said, they'll never believe that. I'll never get away with that. They'll catch me. Uh, It was just a totally being an adolescent had a lot to do with what I did.
0: Why con your way into these exciting occupations and then become a lawyer? Look, I'm a former lawyer, but to to con your way from airline pilot uh, doctor to to the lawyer bit, especially when making a pilot, uh, being a pilot, you made more money. It's kind of like getting a Michelin star and going to work at Chili's, right? Like, I love my lawyer buddies, but it, it, the only reason I can think of is it must have been a great place to hide from the FBI at the jur- attorney general's office. Uh, you know, we're back to the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I, I left the
1: hospital because I knew I couldn't stay there doing that, even if they had asked me to stay there. And then I met a flight attendant who basically started talking to her. She was from Louisiana. She said that her father was the attorney general there and i started dating her and then she i she said something to me about uh in a conversation i, I mean, back in those days all pilots had second jobs they could only work 80 hours a month so they were accountants some of them were lawyers and they did they had owned small companies they were entrepreneurs as well as flying so i Made a comment to her that I had a uh, law license, that I had practiced law for a little bit, but then I became a pilot. But I said, now I'm furloughed. This is back when the airlines would furlough pilots for a month or years at a time. And I said, so I'm kind of looking for work. So when I went down and met her dad, uh, he said, well, why don't you take the bar here in Louisiana? If you pass the bar, you can work in my office. And I just went ahead and did it. Again, it was an opportunity. If I had said to myself, I'm going to Louisiana to be a lawyer— It it would have never happened. So I always look back at everything I did and think of myself as more of just an opportunist and that the fact that I was a kid, I was willing to take on those challenges without being scared about them. It's kind of like you're
0: kind of like the Forrest Gump of of imposters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: I know there was a share. There's a quote from the book that I just love. And I think it's a sheriff deputy that says this. And he says, Frank Abagnale could write a check on a piece of toilet paper drawn on the Confederate state's treasury. Sign it. You are hooked and cash it at any bank in town using a Hong Kong driver's license for identification. So I could. I could. And I believed I could. And I probably would. (laughs) That about says it all when it comes to your level of confidence and swagger when you're doing this stuff. And you mentioned that when it comes to forgery, it's not how good the check looks. It's how good the person behind the check looks.
1: Absolutely. Listen, when I first started making checks, I mean, you would have laughed. You would have laughed. I mean, I would go to these stationery stores and buy these what they called blank counter checks that came in a pad, because back before MICA encoding and all that, you could just write out the check and then put your account number on it. And I would type that, as I said in the book, on an IBM wheel writer, and i typed type the bank's name in over and over to look like it was actually printed on there. And then I took a decal off these model planes, and I'd put it up in the left-hand corner, and i let it dry in a book overnight so it looked like that was a four-color a decal up there or printed on there, and I'd put Pan Am's name in, the same thing, type it. I mean, if you looked at the check, you'd have said, you got to be kidding. This is junk. But they only saw that uniform. It, they paid no attention to the check. They just saw the pilot uniform, and that's all they cared about, and that that was it. I mean, it was just amazing to me how powerful that that uniform
0: was, and that's just human nature about how people are. You mentioned it was easier for you to cash the fake checks when you kept the teller's attention on him, and I, I think you mentioned something along these lines. I'm paraphrasing here, but you did this by paying close attention to her. And is it Dale Carnegie who says to be interesting to other people, be interested in other people? And that, oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You're I was the guy with
1: uh, that's a beautiful necklace you have on. Is that a gift you got from your dad, boyfriend? Oh, thank you very much. And whatever the thing was, I immediately turned it to them to distract, first of all, the check but also just to get them. And many times I wanted them in a little bit way to remember me because that's when I started to learn how to float those checks and I could keep them from clearing for two or three weeks by manipulating the numbers on the bottom of them. So this allowed me to come back to the same place and say, hi, you remember me? I was in here about 10 days ago. You cashed a cashier's check for me from, oh, yeah, that's right. And we talked about it. Yeah, exactly. I remember you. Well, I had another one of those checks. Could you cash it for me? And they in their mind thought, well, obviously the check's good or it would have bounced by now. So I wanted a little bit of that to them to remember me as well. So if I was returning there, so I would always have some conversation with them about something they would remember. Can you
0: explain a little bit about what the float is? You kind of I think you invented this, right? You were using the routing numbers and the bank employees lack of knowledge to get like five or seven extra days at time.
1: Right. No one at the bank knew what these magnetic numbers or Micker numbers were on the bottom of the check. So I went to the library to study it, and I realized that they were basically like a zip code, that there were 12 Federal Reserve banks in the United States. They're numbered 01, which is Boston, to 12, which is San Francisco, so they go east to west. And then there are 36 branches of the Federal Reserve, which is the third number in the line. So if I were to forge a check, say, off a New York bank, which would be 021, second Federal Reserve, first branch, Manhattan, and I was to take that zero and change it to a one, then when I cashed a check in New York, it would go to the 12th Federal Reserve, San Francisco, to its first branch, Honolulu, Hawaii. And by the time that check got all the way there and then that bank in Hawaii said "Uh, this is a forged check, stamped it and returned it all the way back to New York, you had a two, three-week float.
0: Yeah, so there wasn't – people would think, oh, well, that goes back to your earlier point. Oh, well, this would have bounced sooner than – I saw him three days ago. Yeah, I would have known this is bad because it must have gone through. They're not thinking, oh, it's a bank in Hawaii then they thought it was a mistake and then they mailed it back and – Right. So no, they had
1: no idea. Right. And somebody else is thinking they just said, "What? why do you want to make it obvious to the person uh, talking to them and pointing out things? So then they remember you. No, for me, it was more about I want them to remember me because I'm planning to come back here in a week or two. And I have to have some way to start the conversation so that they're assured with, oh, I cashed his last check. It was good. So this check's good.
0: Right. You want them to essentially, if you're dealing with somebody else or somebody says, hey, I don't know about this, they say, oh, I know I've been working with him before. Oh, well, in that case, right. you know, my suspicion exactly. is melting away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you used real checks on bogus accounts, not fake checks. Right. Once you got really good at this. So you didn't need to be like a forgery <laughs> expert every time. No. As you
1: know, the the uh, again, this is a perfect example of being just something I did. I walked in a bank in Chicago My entire attention was to go in this bank and open a checking account with $100. I knew that in two weeks, their check printer would mail me 200 checks with this name and ID I already had. Then I'd go out and cash all these 200 personal checks. So I went in the bank, and I opened the account, and I handed the, the girl $100, and she said, well, here's some temporary checks. We'll be mailing you your printed checks in about 10 days. Now, because I was young and inquisitive, I just happened to say to her, I noticed that I don't have any deposit slips. Oh, no, if you need to make a deposit in the meantime, just go over there to that table in the lobby and help yourself to a blank deposit slip, then write your account number in and then use these till you get your printed ones. So I walked over and I took a stack of them off there and I went back and I kept sitting in the hotel room saying to myself, well, I wonder what would happen if I encoded my account number on the bottom of all these blanks and then I went back to the bank, put them on the shelf. So that's exactly what I did, and everybody who came in put their money in my account. Oh, but, but, wow! But these were just things that I thought of as I was doing them. I would again, not some plan I had. I went in one direction, and then I came up thinking, well, I could go do this in another direction.
0: That's crazy. I can totally see that working. Nobody's going to look at the bottom and go, hey, the account number's already filled in. That doesn't make any sense. They're just going to turn it in at the table. Right. They- and
1: how it, how it worked was very simple, that if you had gone and taken one off the table in the center of the lobby, you would have ri- written in your account number on the box, but the computers were set up to read the micker line first, and they access- no, no micker line. It read the optical read of what you wrote. So in my case, it was only reading the micker line, ignoring the optical line, and putting the money in my account.
0: Right. So so instead of, so for people who don't know what that is, the machine looks at the machine printing first, and, and it's not going to look at the handwriting. So if you okay. machine print your account number in there, it's going to ignore whatever people write in and just put the money in whatever's machine printed exactly. on the, on the, on the exactly. piece of paper. That's that's amazing. I, there's something that didn't make it in the movie, which makes me, or if it did, it's just escaping me. You actually had to impersonate the FBI to go back and get a check where you would yeah, put that, your real name on the back. What was up with that?
1: that? That was another amazing thing. I was in Eureka, California, and I had, you know, when I wasn't posing as a pilot or anybody, I was just the 18-year-old kid. So I was looking for the 18-year-old girl. So I met a girl out there who was my age. I told her my real name. I told her uh, how how old I actually was, and then I turned around and took a check, and I, I had written her phone number on the back of the check because she was giving me her number. I didn't have any paper, so I took one of these checks out, and I just turned it over and wrote her phone number on it, and then I didn't realize that a check I cashed in Eureka, California at this small bank, I realized after I'd cashed it there that that girl's phone number was on the back. And if the FBI got that check and they called that number and that girl said, well, only guy I ever met with this guy, Frank Avignail, he was like 18 and he was driving this car and all that. So I knew I had to get that check back. So I realized that the check was going to come back as a forgery. The bank would report it. So what I did is I waited at what I felt was the amount of time that it would have come back. They knew it was no good. I waited till the teller that cashed it had gone to lunch. I walked in dressed in a suit, and I just walked up to the reception and said, Hi, uh, my name's so-and-so at the FBI. Uh, I understand you have a check here that's uh, a fraudulent check, a Pan Am check. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's correct. Um, I need to take that, obviously, for evidence uh, for the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. So I said, but if you like, you can make a copy of it and uh, just make a copy of the front of it. Keep that for your records. I'll sign it that I took the actual check. And then I took the actual check back and, and destroyed it.
0: And, of course, she only copied the front, not the back the front, where you had your real right, name.
1: Right. I told her, just copy the front and I'll initial it that I took it.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, you must have, there's got to be some times where you walked out of the bank and you just went, okay, I need to take a deep breath and like unclench every you know sphincter in my whole body right now, which is all uh, dialed in because that's scary. I mean, if she goes, I don't think so. Or if the FBI is already there, there's a cop in the lobby. I mean, you're you're so screwed. No, that's exactly right. And but I mean, that's where I think this
1: whole adolescent thing came in. I think had I been a little older, I would have been petrified about going back. in. I probably would have never done it. But I would have been petrified about going in there and somebody not believing me or questioning me or saying to me, well, let me see your credentials. You know, I I just kind of ad-lib these things, and then I, you know, in my mind, I'll deal with that when that happens. I don't want to pre-think it. Uh, I don't want to pre-act this. You know, it's kind of like when they tell me to go do a video, a training video, and they say, let's run through it first. I don't like to run through it. I said, I'll just do it, and then if you don't like it, we can do it again. I don't like to have to run through it. I like to ad-lib it and just do it. And they, they call me one-take Avignale because <laughs> I just do it and I'm done. I did that IBM commercial. They had scheduled five hours for me to film that IBM commercial. I did it in 30 minutes, and I was gone. That's
0: funny. Yeah, that's (laughs) – so the three traits of a good con, man, that's a good segue, personality, (laughs) observation, and research. We talked about observation. Is there a way that you train security people to, to hone their observation skills?
1: Yeah, again, you know, I find that a lot of people today are, are extremely educated. You know, FBI agents they have law backgrounds, accounting backgrounds. When they come to the academy, they come from good families. They come from a great uh, educational background. They're very smart people. But I try to teach them to not look at everything black and white, that you have to look at things that maybe it's not exactly that. Maybe that's not what they say or they, they're making you want to believe that. I also teach them how to get information staying within the legal limits of the law, but how to get information that you need for your case without uh, going over that line and breaking the law. But again, I find that a lot of them are not resourceful, so they really have to be, to, uh, to be taught that. And, and, and that's basically what I do. Now, crime has changed a lot. When I went to the FBI Academy 43 years ago, there were no computers. There were no Internet that existed most of the things I was dealing with were forgeries and and embezzlement cases and things like that. Today, the last 20 years, everything I deal with is related around cyber and breaches and things involving uh, the internet. So I've had to change with crime. I've had to learn all these things over again. But the one thing that stays the same, no matter how much technology is in the world, the criminal mind stays the same, thinks the same. All right. The same scams that they did 50 years ago are the same scams today. They're just using another method to do it. So once you know all those scams, you know how they think. It's just a question of figuring out
0: now how are they doing it. Right. So criminal psychology, it sounds like, never really changes. Just the methodology of the crimes changes. Absolutely. So Absolutely. You have to, do you have to think like a criminal every day? Is that more or less your e- day-to-day? E- every, every day Every I have to think like a
1: criminal on every. You know, when I write a book, that was my fifth book about crimes. When I write about crimes, no matter what they are, I have to think like that criminal. When I work uh, with, the, you know, I spend a lot of the time with the agents out in the field as well, or their field officers. If they're working with a case and I'm sitting with an agent, I have to th- go put myself in the mind of the person they're chasing and ask myself, you know, where would, what would I do? What would be the thing that I would do if I had to get away or I had to hide what I did or thing And. And uh, I, I'm constantly in the same way with, when I work with technology companies, I have to ask myself, how would I defeat this? If I had to get in here, how would I get around
0: all this uh, security? Actually, a cousin, my wife's cousin, she called and said something scary just happened. And this reminded me of, of you when I was prepping for this interview. She said, I got a call from the police department and they got me really riled up. They got me really scared and they said someone's been using your social security number and they rented a car and they stole or they stole a car, something like that. They they didn't return the rental. They've been using it in drug deals. We need you to verify some information. Is is this the exact what is the exact amount you have in your bank account and all these other things. And I she then the phone call had dropped because she had to go to the parking structure in the city where she lived to get her car and that's when she started to sort of the the, the she started to thaw out a little if you will right, and, she, exactly. and she called us instead after that instead of calling them back they had even transferred her they had called another person they gave her a phone number of a real police department that they said they were calling from she ended up calling someone else it was just absolutely flabbergasting how complex this scam was And you call this, the reason this worked was what you call being under the ether. And you you mentioned this is crucial to cons. It's this heightened emotional state that makes it really hard for the victim to think clearly or make rational decisions. You sort of condition them to trust you or to be infatuated with what's presented. So either greed or you've played all the right cards, they think you're a cop or the DA, you hit that fear button, that panic button, and that urgency button, and that magic combination puts them under the ether.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I've spent most of my career dealing with crimes against financial institutions, corporations and government agencies. But the last five years, I devoted a lot of my time to the AARP, which has 38 million uh, members. These are seniors, 50 and older. And the crimes that are perpetrated against the elderly folks is incredible. So I wrote this book. I I receive no royalties. I'm no advance for this book. I wrote this book with the proceeds going to AARP for the sole purpose of helping educate people about these scams. And I looked at every conceivable scam there is and how they work. And the one thing that I've always known and I've even know better today is that every scam, no matter how sophisticated or how amateur it is, there are two red flags. So if you know these red flags, you will never be scammed. And the red flags are pretty simple. At some point, sometime, I'm going to either ask you for money, and I'm going to tell you I need it immediately. You can put it on Apple Pay, go down to Walmart, get a green dot card, wire me the money, it's got to be right now, today or I'm going to ask you for information. What's your social security number? What's your date of birth? What's your mother's maiden name? So even in a romance scam that goes on, and many do for months and months and months, and everything's perfect, everything's great in the relationship, and then one day the 76-year-old woman says to Bob, so Bob, look, if you only live two states away from me, how come you don't come see me? Well, you know, I have to have this operation, and it's $35,000, and I don't have the money, and if I don't have this operation, I don't know that I'm actually going to make it. Well, you know, uh, Bob, I wish you'd have told me I I could loan you the money. That's the red flag. As soon as that comes up, then you have to ask yourself, if you ever met Bob, do you really know who Bob is? Is he some guy sitting over in Athens, Greece, or is he actually two states away? You have to be a, a much smarter consumer today, as well as being a much smarter business person today, or you will get taken.
0: That is, yeah, zing for Greece on that. You must see a lot of international scams where people are calling and they say they're in Idaho, but they're in India or whatever.
1: Absolutely. we get a tremendous amount of scams, for example, out of Jamaica, Jamaican scams on sweepstakes scams. I always have to smile because people say to me, well, they called and said I won this sweepstakes, but I had to pay this money immediately up front to pay the tax before I could get the big money. I said, well, look, did you enter the sweepstakes? Uh, no. Well, then how did you win the sweepstakes? You know, you have to put some common sense to it. And unfortunately, uh, people don't do that. Like you said, they get very caught up in it. And these people, believe me, are very smooth talkers. Uh, sometimes they're dealing with people who live alone. Their husband passed away. Their wife passed away. They're, they want to talk to somebody. And that's what I mean. They will let this sometimes go on and just become a friendly conversation and kind of befriend you. You think you can really get to know them on the telephone. And then all of a sudden, one day, the scam goes into play. But I remind people all the time, this romance scam artist is not just dealing with you. He's got 20 other women he's dealing with. So when he's not talking to you, he's talking to them. He's working all of them, and he'll get back around to you eventually six months, a year later, when it comes time to actually take you for the money.
0: Yeah, I've, I've seen this firsthand. I, I lived in Ukraine for a while and I love Ukraine. It's, it's just this happens to be where I saw this, but I would go to cyber cafes because it was, you know, 10 plus years ago. Right. And at the Internet cafe, there'd be a guy with four women. They're sitting there smoking and I don't know, chatting with each other. And he would say something like, uh, uh. Uh, blah 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 I'm telling him you're my soulmate and I watch him type and it would be like just looking for my soulmate right now uh here's the girl and it's photos of the girl that's sitting there and so she's sort of familiarizing herself with what she is supposedly telling him and this guy who's running the scam is doing all the typing he's setting up the paypal account or whatever and doing he's pulling the levers but she's tracking the story because eventually she's probably going to meet the guy or have to call the guy on the phone and know all this stuff that's it
1: And, you know, the the whole thing is this, that the the truth is the majority of people are honest, thank God. And because they're honest, they don't have a deceptive mind. So when the phone rings and it says it's the police department and then they tell you they've arrested your grandson – But they know everything about your grandson, what kind of car he was driving, the name of his girlfriend that was in the car with him, his parents' names. And then they tell, you know, he's in custody. He has to make post bond. If he doesn't post it in the next hour, he'll have to spend the weekend in jail. He asks us not to call his parents. He asks us to call you. And, you know, then the grandparent says, well, no, no, I want to help. How do I do that? Well, if you just give me a credit card, we can post a bond on the your credit card. And people give them that that information. But by the same token, first of all, it sounds so convincing because on social media, they got all the information. The kids said, here's a picture of my car. Here's my girlfriend's name I've been dating. Here's my parents' name. They go to social media. They get all this information about you. So when they call, it sounds so credible. They go, well, how did they know all that? Well, they know all that because you told them all that on social media. You even provided them pictures. So it just makes it so much easier for the scam artist and it makes it so much more believable. But I tell people, again, before you part with that money, all you had to do is hang up the phone, look up the police department's phone number, call the police and say, I just got a call, said this guy was Sergeant O'Rourke. He said that he had my grandson in custody. But, no, ma'am, that's called a grandparent scam. That's not us. We don't make those kind of calls. Do not respond to that
0: call. That just takes a minute to do, but you need to take that extra step. Do you view the world and other people with more of a skeptical eye? I mean, do you automatically not trust other people or new people? Absolutely not, because I don't like skeptical people, though I
1: do believe that being skeptical is a virtue. So I basically realize that I don't, I, you know, I always feel to myself, who am I to judge anyone? So I have this thing in my mind, I don't judge people until I really get to know who they are, get to know something about them. So I just don't look at people and say, I don't trust this person. I will wait to hear what they say or how they act before I'll make that decision about them. Uh, But uh, there's nothing wrong with being a little skeptical, especially when someone's asking you to part with information, personal information, or asking you to part with your money and your life savings. Uh, There's no
0: problem with being skeptical and checking things out. In the book, this sort of come down, right, is you said, I've reached the pinnacle of the criminal mountain, and the view wasn't that great. I'm not really living, I'm just surviving, and I'm not really enjoying myself. I'm paraphrasing, of course. What right. What was that feeling like? Because you must have been, there's a deeper sense of unhappiness when you have every toy you want, you can travel anywhere, you get, the, you can be in a relationship with all these different women that you're meeting all over the place, and you're still not happy. It's like winning a gold medal in the Olympics and then going, uh-oh, I got what I thought I wanted, and I'm still not happy. There's a malaise that comes with that.
1: Absolutely. And, and the, you know, that was just coming with age and maturity and getting older. You know, um, when I look back on my life now at 71, I know that people are amazed by what I did between 16 and 21. But what's truly amazes me every day that I wake up is that I did those things. I got caught. I went to prison for five years. I came out of prison. I've worked for my government for 43 years. I've been married to my one and only wife for 43 years. I have brought three wonderful sons into the world who one son is an FBI agent celebrating 14 years in the bureau. My life every morning I wake up is unbelievable that I've been able to do that. But the truth is, the reason I have is that 43 years ago, I didn't come out of prison and say to myself, oh, uh, you know, I'm a changed man. I'll never do this again. I I, I know people want me to say I was born again. I saw the light. Prison rehabilitated me. The truth is, I saw it as another opportunity. Here's an opportunity to get out of jail. So I'll go do this, what the government wants me to do, and then I'll see what I'm going to do from there. But I met my wife on an undercover assignment. I fell in love with her. I told her everything about me, uh, I, she trusted in me. She believed in me. She married me against the wishes of her parents. And she changed my life, becoming a husband and bringing children into the world and fatherhood and the importance of all that. Uh, that changed who I was, changed the way I thought about things. And uh, I'm just so fortunate that that came into my life and that I live in a country where you can make a mistake, pay your debt back to society, and get up. And start all over again and do something with your life if you really want to change your life. And I've been very fortunate in those two counts. I
0: I really appreciate this story and I love the redemption here. You know what surprised me? I before we go, what surprised me was how bad prison was in France. What what the heck? You don't think about that when you think about European prison. You think about Sweden, you think about Norway, you don't think solitary confinement, no light, no toilet, no clothing, no blanket. What's going on there? That's insane. It's like Guantanamo. I I know, but I have to say this in the
1: defense of the French. They believe that you go to prison to be punished, that you acted uh, in a bad way and you need to be put away and taken out of society. Uh, Their sentences are short. They don't have these 10, 20 year sentences. Uh, but you are. There is no working out in the gym, watching TV, or living better than people on the street who haven't broken the law, uh, air condition and stuff. They believe. They believe that you go to prison to be punished. So the truth is, uh, the rate of recidivism in our country is over eighty percent. In France, it's less than one percent. And once you've gone to a French prison you will never go back. So when I go to France now, I don't double park, I don't jaywalk, I don't do anything. You know. So I think of all the three prisons I was in, it truly had the most lasting effect on me personally.
0: Yeah, the, I can I can see it. I mean, you almost <laughs> died in there. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, wow. Well, it was bad. Yikes. Yeah, I you know uh, you ended up in a Swedish prison, which sounds like college in the United States with maybe a little bit of less drinking. It
1: was like going to the Holiday Inn. It was just a, a total opposite where the Swedes believed that if you broke the law, there was a reason for it. So we need to find out what the problem was. You wore your own clothes. They didn't want to do anything to immunize, to immunize you. They, they basically read your own mail. Nobody censored it. It was a totally, totally different uh, way of doing it. And the American prison system probably fell somewhere in between the two uh, where, you know, no one really actually mistreated you. But you had lost your freedom. And prison has changed so much when I was in prison, you know, so many years ago. I, I read today where these inmates are pulling scams off from inside prison. Well, they have access to the Internet. They have access to phone calls. Uh, we we could only make a phone call if you had a death in your immediate family. They made a 10-minute phone call from the warden's office. Uh, now they have all this access to the outside world, so they can basically pull off all the things they were pulling off when they were
0: outside of prison. Yeah, you do hear about that, especially with mobile phones and things like that being so readily available in prison. Absolutely. You ever still have nightmares about getting caught again? If Prison was that bad. I don't know if I'd ever shake it. No, and
1: my wife will tell you that. Not often, but every so often I'll wake up in the middle of the night maybe scream or something, and she'll immediately jump up and say, what happened? And you know, most people say, oh, "I thought this person was attacking me, or there was a spider on me, or something. I wake up and say, oh, "Yeah, I thought I was back in prison. I was thinking I was back in prison, or I was being put back in in prison." So, yes, it's always with you.
0: Yeah, you ever, you ever still feel like an imposter? Like, uh-oh, oh, one day I'm going to go work with the FBI, and they're going to say, "Hey, we found out about this other thing you did. You got to, they're going to take uh, you in." No,
1: nah, I, I don't. I don't worry about that anymore. You know, and I can travel anywhere in the world as I do all the time. Uh, without ever having to worry about anything like that. I mean, you know, if you pay your debt back to society and you do the right thing, you know, they're not going to harass you. It's when you, unfortunately, most people get out of prison and eventually end up doing something again and they end up uh, back in prison. You can only change your life if you want to change your life. People can't change your life for you. You You have to want to do that and you have to have some reason, some motivation to want to do that.
0: Is it true that you were close to the FBI agent that ended up catching you?
1: Yeah, his real name was Joe Shea, S-H-E-A. He was a wonderful man. He and I were friends for 30 years. He didn't want his real name used in the the movie. He was on the set during the making of the film. And so Tom Hanks used an old 1950s football player's name, Carl Hanratty. But Joe Shea and I were friends for 30 years when I wrote a book called The Art of the Steel that dealt with identity theft a few years ago. Uh, I dedicated that book to him and uh, and our relationship over those thirty years. He was just a wonderful man. He had two daughters. I stayed very much in touch with them and close to them. Uh, he passed away a few years ago at eighty eight, but he lived a great life, up in sound of mind, sound of health, till he passed away. But he he was a father figure uh, and a wonderful man.
0: This is a great story or set of stories, and I really appreciate your time. I think this is just such a a great set a great redemption story a great set of adventures and the book the movie the book about scams all of this is a worthy read so thank you so much frank Abingdale, for coming on the show today
1: thanks for having me i've
0: enjoyed it jason this is awesome i love it so many stories such a great interview he'd love it clearly he's not sick of telling the stories
2: oh definitely not i mean there man, there were so many stories i'd never heard before i really think this is my favorite episode we've ever done
0: Yeah, this is one of the the tops for sure. Every year, by the way, millions of American consumers, 7% of the population are victims of some scam or fraud. And in 2017, there were 16.7 million victims of fraud who lost 16.8 billion dollars. So that's a crazy high amount. Fraud is is here to stay, and it's on the rise. Never in history has it been easier to be a con artist or be victimized by one. Because of technology, everything's faster, everything's more anonymous, everything's more global, more interconnected. And in his book, he covers identity theft, investment scams. It's called Scam Me If You Can, which is clever. Digital safety, there's romance scams. I remember a couple of years ago, several years ago now, man, probably better part of a decade here, I was coming back from Ukraine. And I saw a friend of mine at the airport, and I went, oh, hey, why are you here? And she's like, oh, my uncle is waiting for his girlfriend from Ukraine. She was on your flight. And I waited with them because my parents had forgotten to pick me up, actually. (laughs) Whoops. And uh, yeah, so I was waiting for my parents to come get me, and she never came out. And he's like, oh, maybe she got caught by immigration. Maybe there's a problem. And, and so I was able to sort of like circle back around because I had a you know I just gotten off the flight and so I went back and checked for them and sure enough she just never never got on the plane she never got on the plane okay surprise surprise romance scam oh, and I said man. did she by chance uh, have any problems and they're like no I don't know and then I I circled back a couple weeks later oh yeah it turns out she got robbed going to the airport and asked <laughs> for a bunch more money and I went oh yeah don't yeah. send it to her this is so common I heard that one before. Yeah, it's a bummer because she was flying to America to basically see her love of her life and maybe get married. And, you know, oh, yeah, I lost my plane ticket and I need more money and all this stuff. And it's like, ooh, this is never happening. This yeah. is not real. No, turns out her name was Vlad. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Her name was Vlad, and she works at a cyber cafe and has 20 other guys who she's scamming and says she's coming. There is actually a difference, by the way, on who gets scammed demographically. Investment fraud are married guys who are college educated make over 50K because that's who's investing the most. Lottery victim scams are people who are not college educated make less than 50K and are single. And identity theft mostly is women who are single making less than 50K, but uh, they're being victimized for identity theft at a rate higher than average for the general population, which is interesting. I thought that was kind of interesting. They're, high, they're more educated and they're really the prime victim for identity theft.
2: My ex-girlfriend was a victim of identity theft and she was targeted by somebody in her apartment building and actually like was waiting for the mailman. So when the mailman came, he's like, oh, she's out of town and took her mail and then signed up for credit cards and just Ooh. kept doing it. And, you know, she ended up with like $100,000 in credit card debt from identity theft And they finally tracked down the guy who did it, who lived two apartments down, who was literally waiting at the mailbox and stealing all the single women's mail in the place because he figured that they had good credit and he could just sign up and he's still in the same building. So it's still coming to the same address. And, you know, it's it's crazy what people do for
0: money. I mean, that always makes me think how how much how much drugs are you doing where you're stealing from your neighbor? You're stealing your neighbor's identity. This was Hollywood, so probably a yeah, lot. probably a lot. Good point. Yeah, exactly. Wow, because like, how are you not thinking, gee, I'm the first person, one of the first people that's going to be on the list? It's clearly yep. mail fraud. When you're under stress, you're more easily conned. If you're slow to take prevention actions, like not signing up for the do not call registry, putting your name on those... You know those things at the mall, like, win this car. Those are usually not what they seem. In fact, if you find out who the dealer is, usually the car is on loan. You have a chance at winning a similar vehicle. Not necessarily that one. There's all kinds of scams like this that are in there. Stock market stuff, drawings, all those sweepstakes. A lot of those he mentioned are scams. Uh, One scam that obviously is not that common, one that he ran, he actually, and I saw this in the movie. I didn't know this was real, but it turns out it is. He... Posed, of course, as an airline pilot, but then he went to a college campus and he fake hired a bunch of college girls as airline attendants so that they'd roll around Europe with him all summer. He interviewed a bunch of them. He chose ones with personalities that were more gullible and a little bit more adventurous, and he chose, I think, like eight of them, and he flew them all over Europe in fake Pan Am uniforms, fake Pan Am gear, gave them fake paychecks that he would then cash for them because, oh, we're in Europe and banking this, regulation that, company policy this. So he would just give them cash and keep their checks, right? Because he was the one printing them anyway. And it was just crazy. I mean, some of this stuff is just straight out of the daydreams of 20-year-old men all over the world. You hate to glorify any kind of criminal activity, but he just went full rock star back then. The reason oh, he did this so was baller. because I, I, I know the, the reason he did this was because he wanted not to have a bunch of girls traveling with him. He actually said that added some gray hair and took 10 years off of his life. The reason he did that was because he wanted more cover to go to hotels all over Europe where people were already looking for a single guy rolling around. They, he wanted to be able to pass bad checks everywhere. So he would pass bad paychecks for the girls and for him, and he would just rack up tons of money. I mean, he made hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars during that summer because it wasn't just him cashing paychecks. It was him and his whole gaggle of women distracting the staff, cashing checks, taking the cash, spending some of it, spending, you know, he could send some of them elsewhere to do decoy stuff and take photographs. I mean, he really had a whole, he had a whole racket going.
2: He's it's an evil a, genius. Because yeah, I if you've ever was. been at those hotels when where the pilots stay, they always roll in. It's always the pilot, the co pilot, and like seven women. So he totally figured that out way before anybody else did. Genius.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just absolutely crazy. There's so many stories in the book. Catch me if you can. Obviously, you guys should watch the movie as well. This this movie is amazing. Catch me if you can if you haven't seen it. Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, what's not to love? Great acting, great story. Oh, Christopher Walken, of course. How could I forget? So great big thank you to Frank W. Abignail. His newest book is Scam Me If You Can. His original book, Catch Me If You Can. Links to that stuff will be in the show notes. I'm teaching you how to connect with great people and manage relationships using systems and tiny habits over at Six Minute Networking. It's kind of like the good kind of social engineering. That course is free that's at jordanharbinger.com slash course. Don't do it later. I know you think you're going to do it later. The problem kicking the can down the road, you cannot make up for lost time when it comes to relationships and when it comes to networking. The number one mistake I see people make is not digging the well before you get thirsty. Once you need relationships, you're too late. The drills take a few minutes a day. I wish I knew this stuff 20 years ago. It is not fluff. You ignore this at your own peril jordanharbinger.com slash course is where that is and by the way most of the guests on the show subscribe to the course and the newsletter so come join us and speaking of building relationships you can always reach out or follow us on social at jordan harbinger on both twitter and instagram this show is produced in association with podcast one and this episode was co-produced by jason and jen harbinger show notes and worksheets are by robert fogarty music by evan viola and i'm your host jordan harbinger Our advice and opinions and those of our guests are their own. And yes, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. So do your own research before you implement anything you hear on the show. And remember, we rise by lifting others. The fee for this show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful, which should be in every episode. So please share the show with those you love and even those you don't. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time.